sometimes in the creative pursuit, the love and and encouragement from your immediate community is complicated or contaminated by their love of you. Mm-hmm. And they want to root you on and they want to support you. The mark of like actually doing something as a career is when people that do not know you want the thing you make. You're listening to the Almost 30 Podcast, hosted by Krista Williams and Lindsay Simsek. Almost 30 started as a conversation about the transition from our 20s to our 30s. But then we realized life is full of transitions. So we expanded our mission. We are an intuition-led, wellness-focused lifestyle podcast that promises to deliver authentic conversations, diverse points of view, and insights rooted in optimism, growth, and intention. The Almost 30 Nation community is a group of purposeful dreamers who are smart, passionate, and always seeking the full potential in every aspect of their lives. At Almost 30, we're making magic together. We dream it, and then we do it. Thanks so much for tuning into the Almost 30 Podcast. Here we go. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Greetings. Hello, guys. Welcome back to Almost 30 Podcast. It's your girls, and we're in New York. We're in New York. I've got a big old blister on my foot. I saw that. Sexy. Sexy, right? Yo, my it's young and sexy is what I call myself. I'm wondering if like our feet were okay when we were actually living here. I've been really I've been really talking to my feet this week and really thanking them for all the movement. It's crazy though, I've been exhausted because we have been walking you know you know, you guys know the story. New York, you walk, that's the thing. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, but this is how much I used to work all the time when I lived here. That's why I was Back, back then later. we didn't count steps. So now I'm competitive. Oh, oh, homie, I was counting my steps. I was like, Cheryl, we are not taking a cap. We are fucking getting 20,000 steps today. <laughs> you got 20,000 yesterday? Mm-hmm. I got 20,000 Sunday. It but you got 20,000 yesterday? Mm-hmm. How? We walked from uh, 44th to 82nd. And and then additionally, kind of like in between. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> I know it's wild. Doing what? Um... Well, we had like the, some things in the morning, some interviews and meetings, and then we just decided to walk all the way to Maddie's and she wanted to see the, um, see my old apartment and kind of just oh yeah see the narrow space that I lived so in cute, and the right? box that I lived in. But, and, and we wanted to go through the park. So we go, went through the park. Oh, saw this like- We I, were in Central Park too. Really? Mm-hmm. So beautiful. We saw this, this is a very stupid- Side note, but like we saw this squirrel who was belly down on this tree, like kind of funny. I thought it was funny. So I Instagrammed it. And then this girl messaged me, of course, love her. I thought she was a vet. She's not a veterinarian, but knows a lot about squirrels. And she's like, oh, that means he had a stroke or that means she's about to give birth. And I was like, oh my God, I love God. the internet. I love the internet. I, love I just internet. thought it was being like a turd of a squirrel being all weird and like totally. belly down. You're like mood. <laughs> Literally, it's a vibe. And she's like, Monday. It had a stroke, and I was like, Oh my of god! Of course, you've already created. I got to take it down because Squirrel Society is like coming after that feeling. When <laughs> I mean, last up, that's kind of an interesting fact, though. It is an interesting. Thank you for fact. that. Thank you. <laughs> I just called Zara Zara. So, oh, that's where are you from? Where I'm at, fashion wise. <laughs> we were talking about one of our friends had a reading from a medium. She needs to be. 
shopping at Gucci. Not at Zara. Not at Zara. Wow. <laughs> it's a really, I love, I love when people use. Where is the Gucci store like in LA that? though? I, I saw it and I actually Elefante thought of you. versus bungalow. <laughs> oh, in LA. Yeah. Like, what do you mean? Oh yeah. That's actually true. Like what's the nice place? Oh, you mean shopping wise? No, no. Like, oh, just like yeah, in general. using the metaphor for dating. Got it. Where's the nice place to go looking for men? It's like instead of going to the bungalow, you go to Soho House Malibu. So, I don't know. I could see that. I actually could see that. <laughs> so you got to pay to play. Gotta you got to play, baby. Pay to play. Got to pay to play, baby. That's so true. And Justin and I had a walk. We hung out yesterday. It was so beautiful. So nice. Walked by Trader Joe's. There was a bouncer outside. Huh. There was a line. Really? I do not. Were they just letting letting people in as they... Yep, because it was too packed. Oh, that is not a grocery shopping experience I want to be a part of. I'm good on all that. Wow. Yeah. I saw some people... <laughs> Peace and love. Obviously, I love I, New York. I know. I loved... I. It, it's actually really nice to come back because I remember all the things I really, really, really love about it. And then this morning I was walking around and we're in Fidei. So like Fidei is... Not the vibe. Not the vibe. Kind of dark as hell. Not the vibe at all. <laughs> Nobody lives down here really. Yeah. In comparison to everywhere else. But the thing is you get, uh, of course, so Fidei, Fidei livers, sorry, don't be mad. Your space is probably the most gorgeous apartment probably, in New York. Because yeah. we're staying in a beautiful, gorgeous place by Saunder. We're working with Saunder. Beautiful. And, and yes, continue. Yeah, I was just, I, I saw, no lie, three men uh, walking and crying this morning, <gasps> like in suits. It was very weird because I've never seen that before. And I felt- It's beautiful. No, I, I, they, were, they were so sad and miserable. Oh, it was bless. like one of those, like they were coming from something or scared or nervous about, like, I don't even know. I was like- God, they probably know something we don't know. happening? It was wild. They were separate men. Yep. It was very weird. I was like, okay. Wow. Is this doomsday? It, yeah, it is interesting being being down here and just kind of like, I forget that it exists. I don't know. I know. Just kind of this type of hustle and bustle and vibe. And, and I have a lot of respect. I have a lot of respect for people in this world. You know, it helps the world run, mm -hmm. I understand. So I don't know. I'm just, uh, we're here anyway. Yeah, and after, it's funny. So we had our catching you guys up. We had our live show with Heather McMahon. So fun. On Thursday at Chelsea Music Hall, which was a Hail Mary. Hail Mary. But this is this is just why I love what we do. I know. Anytime, so, yeah. Go ahead. So we'll tell, tell you. So, tell the story. So we had our, so our live shows, that like the one that we did in San Francisco, it's more presentational. We have an interview. We interview someone. It's like on a stage. It's like a whole thing. So we had one here in New York and the space we originally got was in Brooklyn and we were like, cool, dope. Like we'd actually, it'd be dope to hit up Brooklyn while mm -hmm. we're here doing things in New York. And we come to find out that the space in Brooklyn only seats 60 people. Yeah. So this, yeah, it was um, 60 seated and then the rest was standing room, which is uh, more than half. So that was not okay. Yeah. So we had already sold over the amount of seats that they had exactly. and we didn't want people standing. Like mm -hmm. that's not, not that's not vibe. comfortable. It's not the vibe. So we had to hurry up and cancel, get every ticket refunded, find a new space that had enough for us, make sure it was available within maybe two weeks. 
So there had to be an open available theater that had enough seating for as many people as we wanted. We had to make sure that the original space refunded the tickets and let the people with the tickets know that we were doing that. (sighs) So we found this space and then our lovely, sweet friend, Nikki Glazer, Mm -hmm. got on Joe Rogan, which is insane. So she's fucking pumped. She has her new special she's um, promoting right now you know, came out a few weeks ago on Netflix. It's called on, Bangin' on Netflix and she gets on Joe Rogan. So she's got to do Joe Rogan. So we were finally eventually had a space, but now needed a guest. Yeah. It was crazy. It was about a week out week out a little over a week out that we switched the space. We were nervous about ticket sales and nervous about finding a new guest. Um, but as fate would have it, we, We've always been a Heather McFan fan. I emailed Heather months ago. I wanted Heather to be a guest at a live show months ago. So Mm -hmm. if her team would check their email, they would see (laughs) that I've emailed them a few times. So we couldn't, I couldn't get a hold of her. Yeah. It was really difficult, but I just, I messaged her on, we all messaged her on Instagram. She gets probably a hundred million DMs a day, but I, I think it was just the right time of day. She saw, I don't know. I don't know what, but she replied literally within 30 seconds and said, sounds great. I'm in. And I was like, what do you mean? I was like, are you sure? (laughs) She's like, yeah. What do I need to do? Like, let me know. And I was like, oh my God. So she's just a delight and so easy to work with and so fun. And so, yeah, we locked it in and, had we had never met her before, so we had a little FaceTime pre-call for about you know in between meetings that she had and and we had. So it was actually perfect because meeting her, we got to meet her before the show for like a half hour, and it was obviously so comfortable. She's dude, just she's like the best. The best. You guys don't even know. Don't it, even you guys know. know. I just, that's a total lie. You guys absolutely know. But even nicer and kinder mm-hmm. than you could imagine on Instagram. Yeah. Like she brought one of her friends who was someone that she was like, she out. just met him. A she couple just months met ago. him and was like introducing ago. him to the industry, showing him around. Tim so Davis. kind. So Tim Davis. Sweet. And yeah, was incredible. A dream. Yeah. We had just such a blast. So we, Kristen and I usually go on first and we kind of do our, our little chat and bit. We talked about New York because we have so much history here which was a lot of fun. Tons uh, of LOLs. Tons of LOLs. Tons of LOLs. We had a bunch of friends in the audience, a bunch of new friends that we had never met before that are fans of the show, fans of Heather. My parents were there. Finally understand what I do, which is cool. But yeah, I um, it couldn't have gotten better to be completely honest. Yeah, I was so nervous all day. Oh, I get really nervous before live shows. Yeah, it's, um, it's a different energy it's, for it's me. It's totally different. But I mean, you would, you would never know that. Like yeah, seeing you up there. I told them. Yeah. <laughs> I walk on stage. I'm like, I like, if you see a brown spot on this jumpsuit, honestly, I've been like, I've been, I've been nervous all day guys. And they're like, wow, we feel, we don't feel safe anymore in this. We don't, we don't feel safe with what's about to happen. But I, I don't, I'm trying to figure out what it is. It's like more of because it feels like I'm presenting than others. You know, others feels more conversational. Like I can kind of roll with it is maybe what it was because we do like a bit at the mm-hmm. beginning, you know, mm-hmm. we each do our bit. 
So that feels, but it's more of an exciting thing where this is kind of what I want to be doing. So there's an excitement around it where it's like, this is good. This feels good. But you always want to be a little bit nervous about what you're doing. Not always. (laughs) That's not a, that's not a good way to live life. You don't, you don't want to always be a little nervous about what you're doing. That's actually torture. Going to the gym, a little nervous. (laughs) Literally like going to sleep with my husband, a little nervous. (laughs) You don't want to always be a little, but there's points in time in your life and your career when it's good to feel a little nervous about what it is that you're doing. What's that Bed Bath & Beyond quote? Um, exci- 20% excitement off in is store n- online? <laughs> excitement <laughs> is nervousness with breath. Or oh, like, I love or that. Or fear with breath. I love that. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, Take that to the bank, y'all. <laughs> Just turn off the pod and you can hit the road. Truly. I, I wanted to kind of like reflect on Heather's fucking hour. It was a set. Mm -hmm. Honestly, this woman is always on and not in a way that you're like, okay, can we not be on? It was in a way that was just so it was a ride. I was like, I'm on a ride with Heather McMahon. And I know that. And it was, it was a really nice balance of getting to know her, her story, where she's been, how she got here, how it wasn't overnight. Everyone's like, oh, she's blowing up. Like I discovered her, you know, whatever. She's been doing this for 12 years, y'all. Like it is not... It, it has not been easy. She's been to LA, back to Atlanta. You know, she, she lost her father quite suddenly and moved back with her mom in Atlanta and was just like mourning and grieving and also trying to figure out what her next career moves were. You know, all the while too, like being super, super honest on Instagram and hilarious and finding like the light and and the hilarity in these steps in her life and um, creating characters around it and, and just being fucking ridiculous and amazing. And it, a lot of people I overheard like came up to her after and was just like, you, you know, you've helped me through a lot of really hard times by making me laugh. Yeah. Like laughed my way out of it. Laughter is number one. Truly. So we're going to have that, that live show episode for you guys. So we recorded that um, at Chelsea music hall and we will be able to release it on the podcast coming here shortly. And hopefully doing more with Heather this year. But this episode this week is near and dear to my heart. I can't believe it. It's actually really crazy for me. And it's so I heard Jedediah on uh, Ritual years and years and years ago, probably I think 2015. And I will never forget it. I just was like, wow, this person is so authentic and human and well-spoken and just there's a a loving of life and the presence of being that he has that is just like incredible. And I will, I can't believe that today, you know, we have him on the podcast. Yeah. I mean, we, we had the like privilege of being with not only him, but a lot of uh, people, I, I want to say in his circle, but it's just like these in, incredibly talented and impactful creatives at onsite a few, few weeks ago. And um, I just, you know, his presence to me was like the observer that I want to be, Mm. you know, like he was just such a masterful observer of things and without needing to be in the conversation just to have his voice heard. He was always super thoughtful about engaging with people. It wasn't just about like him, you know, it was, I just really, really admire him. He's such a wordsmith in conversation and of course in his book and and he's so damn funny 
and there's just no airs about him. And I think that's why people can connect to him so quickly because there are no airs about him. So yeah, we're grateful. We're on a high. So he's a travel writer, Instagram, famous, amazing person being New York Times bestseller. He graduated from USC and Pepperdine University of Law. So he worked at Invisible Children for a long time in their in their law department and really shook his sleeping self, quit his job, and wrote a book about his journey from Oregon to Patagonia. And it's just the most beautiful, deep writing and getting to talk to him was amazing. So we're really excited about you guys hearing. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening. We are, as always on tour. So if you'd like to come and visit us and see us in person, we would love to see you. It's the reason why we do this. So almost30podcast.com slash tour. You can find more information. We're on tour till the end of the year. And thank you for subscribing, rating, and reviewing. You know, Thank you for just sending us kind notes and words and messages. It really it means a lot to us. We read every single one of them. Yes. And if you want to connect with Jed, you can connect with him at Jedediah Jenkins on Instagram. It's all one word, J-E-D-I-D-I-A-H-J-E-N-K-I-N-S, Jedediah Jenkins. And then you can also get just catch his book, To Shake the Sleeping Self, wherever books are sold. It is on my bedside table. Yeah. All right. Enjoy this one and we'll see you on the other side. See you soon. I'm sure there are like very fucked up, weird oh, country that? music lyrics. And we all just listen and we're like, what's the Christmas song where it's Maybe like. Maybe it's called outside. <laughs> yeah. What? Where it's basically about. Yeah. Not. I really must go, yes. but baby, it's cold outside. <laughs> what is he just saying? I want you to stay. Ropes. Yeah. I'm going to look it up. <laughs> the, yeah. It's like the lights are down low. She's like, I'm. It's yeah. like I've had too much to dr- what's in this drink. Yeah, oh, like the what's in this drink. Yeah. Um, I really can't stay. I gotta go away. And then she talks about she's like getting she's she like she says, Well, maybe dizzy. just a half a drink more. <laughs> so what's in this drink? And the guy says, No cabs to be had out there. I wish oh, I wow. knew how to break this spell. <laughs> it's terrifying yeah. to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole time it's like he's whispering. She's like, "What's in this drink?" He's like, "No cabs out there." <laughs> oh the door is locked. I know, honestly. Your pants are off. Yeah, I don't know how. It's like this might be the last words you say. Yeah. <laughs> that is. Holy yeah, I'm moly. sure there's a lot of them. Also, but in rap today, rap music today, they say wild. Yeah. Wild things that you're like, if someone said that as a normal thing you'd be like <gasps> I know. You know but you just hear it with the beat and you're yeah, like yeah yeah you're like, <laughs> like me up <laughs> did you have you watched the I know you watched it and I caught most of it last night the Travis Scott documentary mm-hmm. no there I just didn't think it was done very well I like, completely agree because oh. I was really interested in it because I it's not the type of music I'm like listening to first right but I just there wasn't a lot of it was just a lot of like them jumping yeah. around and yeah. I kind of wanted I wanted him like because I he's it's so not, he's talented yeah. so is it a concert video, no. documentary so it's a documentary about him creating um, his last album up to the Grammys when he lost the Grammy to Cardi B so it shows like the entire process of of him what was the album called again Astroworld Astroworld of him creating Astroworld like recording in Hawaii with Mike Dean and like all these different people and Kylie there was some Kylie moments yeah it was good it just 
I would love to know his thoughts on things, mm-hmm. you know, and he didn't really talk a lot. It was more like clips of moving and, and all that kind of stuff. But it was cool to see because I didn't really understand how he got to where he was. So to yeah. see that he was like rapping in Houston from a very Did young Did it feel age. sanitized? Like it's not the truth? Mm, or it's just like, really. I wanted to go deeper, I guess. Yes. It was probably the truth. But also I think the most shocking was like, you risk your life going to those shows. It's actually very, there's uh, so many people. Whoa. And like the- the, Squ- the Squashing each other. Squashing yes. each other. And and he kind of- um, Encourages it. Encourage, he's also really good at like, he's like, hey, need a paramedic over here. Need a paramedic there was over a, here. It was uh, but glamorizing it, that on the way. It was like, it was pretty wild. It's not violent. Like people are punching each other. It's just by accident, you might get very, very hurt. Yeah. Trampled. Um, there was like anyway. scenes of him at music festivals and there was people, their bodies had passed out and they were like bringing them to paramedics on the stage. And and I was actually, I had to think about that because I was wondering, is the music creating this environment where people feel this rage and this anger that they need to express? Or do people need a place that they need to express this rage and anger? And is I, it, Are they expressing rage and anger or just wildness? Like they're jumping around, pushing each other, kind of like that moshing. Yeah, I did that in teen- when I was a teenager. Tell me I more. Loved it. Yeah, t- like- loved it. I <laughs> crowd surfed, and I was like a little. No, I've but- always wanted to crowd surf. Oh actually. my god, it is spiritual when when there are just <laughs> that's like kind of what he mystery says. hands floating you above a crowd, wow. and you don't even know who it is. It's very cool. Cool. What and- concert? Honestly, I don't remember. I was in high school. That, that is amazing. In Nashville. And it was just like a mosh pit. I don't even know who I went with. I can imagine like the release of that groped. energy. Like say it's like ecstatic dance when we go to a yes. workout class. Okay. Yeah. But like in that setting, it's like really just like freely yeah. moving yeah. your body and like screaming. And I'm sure when they leave, they're just like, <sighs> yeah, <laughs> it is. There is some profound core level release of yeah. that kind of animalistic throbbing. <laughs> it feels cool. I know that's what I was thinking. I'm like, I think it's healthier than we think actually. And I think we're so scared of it that we want to contain it because I do feel like kids today or not kids today, you know, I've been to Travis Scott concerts, but people today don't have a place to express Mm. anger and rage and feeling like unseen or feeling misunderstood and all these things. Cause I don't know. I didn't feel like I had that space. And that was actually something I I wrote down. I actually wanted to, to talk about with you and I, we can talk about it now since we're here and then I want to go into your story and, and things like that. But how have you learned to express anger and express pain? You know, has that been something that's come easily for you or what has that journey been like today? It's an interesting question. And I, I don't know how I express anger. (laughs) I don't experience very much anger Mm -hmm. and that has a lot to do with I think a coping mechanism of being a little gay boy in rural Tennessee was to become disconnected from every, like to float above my life and watch it from a distance so that it didn't feel so vulnerable. I would, I didn't feel so vulnerable. And so Mm. because of that, I don't, I do not have a short temper. I do not get worked up. I'm just kind of like observing things. I'm just, I'm like on the couch watching planet earth. You know, there's some drama going down on the screen, but I'm just sipping on a LaCroix chilling, <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. And so that is, that's just a part of my personality. 
And it really always has been. I used to get really angry at my little brother, but that didn't feel logical. That felt like, I don't even know, just like brother primal, get out of my room. Mm -hmm. I will kill you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know? Like, and I pinch him so hard. You're like, yeah, and grip my teeth. Oh my God. (laughs) What are you doing? (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, now that I look back on that, I would be overcome with this like rage that is not me. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of confusing and scary, but the in the vast majority of my life where I do feel like myself, I do not experience much anger. I can feel hurt like yeah. in a relationship or I can feel frustrated, but it doesn't quite like, I don't, I don't like, so in a car, most cars have what's called a governor where it won't actually allow you, even though the speedometer might go up to 140 it won't allow you to go above 110. If you do, it'll rev the engine down because mm. it, it's basically just protecting you. Mm. And you can go in with a mechanic and turn that off, but they have these governors inside them to basically keep you safe and to re- to keep you from overheating the engine and whatever. My brain has a governor. If I start to get worked up, mm. I get, and it, the governor's pretty low. If I get worked up at all, a rush of adrenaline comes and I am just calm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And and I I think I would be really great in crisis, like in a war. I'm sure. Because I don't get, I don't spin up at all. I'm just yeah. like, okay, let's solve this. And so the, I don't know if that's my upbringing, that's circumstantial, that's nature. Yeah. But to your earlier point about like, I don't know if kids have a venue for their anger. I mean, they do like on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, it's more digital, yeah. Yeah, which which... I think it's too early to really say what it means because it's so interesting. Like the whole conversation around fragility now and the the fragile young people and they're, it's so easy to be an adult and look at the kids and be like, Oh, they're so screwed up. They weren't, they didn't have a childhood like us, which Mm -hmm. is just such confirmation bias and not true. But yes, when I was a kid, did we like rough and tumble and roll around and, and like push and fight Mm -hmm. as little kids. And we were allowed to do that. And then, you get it out of your system and it's great that I don't know if they do that anymore. I remember uh, I'm a big fan of this like social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt. And he writes about the current state of Gen Z. And, and he said, there's a misconception that girls are less violent than boys. Like statistically in terms of physical violence, girls are less violent than boys. But if you include emotional violence, girls are exactly the same. Wow. And so basically they equate like name calling, backstabbing, gossip, these things that boys do far less. And so when, and so women or young girls and boys, boys will rough and tumble and fight and then they're friends again. Then in with girl on girl emotional violence. It's, it's really fascinating, especially it spins up with social media and the ability to do it more anonymously. And so all that to say there are like, everyone is getting this experimental violence of youth out somehow. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I don't have a value judgment on what it means. I think we're, when you're a kid, you're just trying to figure out what it means, Mm -hmm. what it means to be a human. So you're going to call someone a name and see if their feelings are hurt or see if 
get called a name and then you're like, oh, maybe that's not good to call mm-hmm. people names because that hurts. Or you're like, maybe I'll double down and I'll just become the bad kid. Yeah. I'm so interested in it too, because when we were at Onsite and in the group therapy, um, and we've talked about Onsite on the podcast before this comes out, but the physical release yeah. that we were seeing yeah. in group therapy, I was yeah. like, whoa, what is that? Yeah. Like what is what is the value of that rather than just talking about it? It was so, it was cool. I was like, oh my gosh. Like they, people walked away feeling so different, both physically and emotionally. So yeah, I'm just curious, you know, if there are more outlets for for kids and like permission to do that. Cause I think, you know, if a, I think as a parent, I would be upset if my kid had like rage. So I'd be, you know, try to calm them down rather than, uh, encourage them to maybe, hey, punch a pillow for five minutes and yeah. then let's talk. Yeah. You know that would scare it's you. So, yeah. yeah, it's so interesting because I feel like sports is probably a great avenue for this. Yeah, 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 <clears throat> totally. Yeah, which I never did. Mm. I mean, I did. I played some soccer and ran cross country, but I was just there because my friends were totally. <laughs> um, but. It is uh, on site. It was so educational to me in, in terms of embodiment, in terms of understanding that you're not just a mind, you're a body. The book Body Keep, The Body Keeps the Score really yes. changed my life. And I think we carry as a as a Western society a lot of Judeo Christian, specifically Protestant Christian, body shame. And it's like the body is carnal. And it's about your soul and it's about your mind. The body is to be rejected. Sex is to be of rejected any kind. And and even to this day, like we've a lot of that framework of the body is smuggled into the modern mind where you see like a Travis Scott mosh pit, or you see a tribal dance around a fire and it feels, Oh my God, they're just animals. They're primitive. Like there's a judgment on that. Even if it sounds fun, there is like some level of a judgment of like that isn't as high as maybe talk therapy is or oh, or meditation. Simple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I onside did a has done great things in my mind of just understanding that my body is also a huge a huge portion of my being. Yep. You know, and everything is so complex cuz every yin has a yang. So like embodiment is celebrating the body. Um, But then I think because we, because we deny our carnal nature, we therefore on the flip side, worship it with like superficial Mm. hypersexualized media and advertising and like beauty products and all these things. So we like turn it into a God when it was never meant to be. All these, I mean, it's just like so complex to be a human. Yeah, so <laughs> complex. And that's, a, and that's the thing with the with the Travis Scott stuff and the mosh pits. It's like, I I guess my thought before would be like, this is dangerous, this is bad. And now I'm like, is this healthy? Like as a question mark, like I think it probably is because, you know, there is Twitter and there is these outlets to express it, but there, because the body keeps the score, it's like, but it's still there. 
you know, and having that opportunity to move it and to like work through it and to not just like keep it from head to mouth or head to hands, but rather head to heart to feet back Mm. up, Mm -hmm. you know, having it do the full circulation through your body to kind of like regenerate and just figure it out. But that's one thing I do. I love about your work and I've always loved about your writing is like you see every side and like the duality of everything that you do and like the, or the non-dualism that you practice and your ability to see from such different perspectives and honor your evolution. And that's been like one of the best things about your book and even listening to your podcast was the like one of my favorite ones ever in 2015 with Rich Roll. I think wow. I told you about that. Yeah. I was listening to it and I'm like, this, I just, it was so crazy to me. I was like, wow, this person is just so like dynamic, you know, like you're like a tapestry of all these amazing, beautiful words and things and feelings. And it was just so powerful. And I knew listening then that I would have a podcast in five <laughs> years and have you on. <laughs> oh my God, thank you. I, re- I do remember though, like when we first started this, I mean, we've been wanting to have you on for so, so long. And it's just interesting how life works and how, you know, just meeting you at onsite and just, yeah, I, I'm just so fascinated by that kind of magic in LA, quote unquote, but um, just in the world when that happens. And that's yeah. happened to me so many times where like my spirit will feel drawn to someone and then I just meet them. Like, and I didn't even mean to. Yeah. Do you have any examples? Like, I love your St- Cheryl Strayed story about advice with the book. Oh, uh, well. I mean, a perfect example is when you write a travel memoir, it's immediately Elizabeth Gilbert, Cheryl Strayed. (laughs) Like there's a few queens and kings Mm -hmm. of the genre. And I'm so auditory and I really fell in love with Cheryl Strayed from her podcast before Wild. Yeah. And I... You know, moving into becoming a writer was, I, I experienced a lot of imposter syndrome because I'm just writing and read, reading books is, is my favorite thing and writers are my favorite type of person. And so I just felt totally silly for me to be calling myself the same title as my heroes. And there's like, you know, you set up these examples in your life, whether you are conscious of it or not of like icons. And so Cheryl was like that just, wow, she, she teaches writing seminars and she's written novels and nonfiction and essays. And she hosts a podcast and her book sold millions of copies and all these things. And I think that is human nature to idolize. It it makes sense. It's It gives youth a direction and, I think it's just, it's interesting. So I got, I got asked after my bike trip, before I'd written my book, I was in the process of writing it, to speak at this conference. It was called Yellow Conference. And boop, Cheryl Strayed was there. And she wasn't even speaking. Her husband was, who's a documentary filmmaker. Fantastic. And I gave my talk. I mean, just about taking risks and, and quitting your job and pursuing pursuing your dream, even if it fails, because I don't want to live a life of regret. So anyway, the next day we're at, it's like a four day conference or three day conference. So the next day we're at like lunch 
And she goes, can I sit by you? And, <laughs> and I'm like, yes. <laughs> You're like, seat's taken. <laughs> seat's taken. Seat's taken. <laughs> so she's like, tell me about your book. And so this was about, this was July of 2016. So I'd actually, I'd been home for a year and a half and I'd been writing my book. And I originally thought it would be uh, creative nonfiction or it, it, it would have been like fictional memoir, sort of like Jack Kerouac's On the Road, where he took liberties to make the story streamline better, but it was mostly true. But he would like take liberties. I thought that would be kind of fun to like add some magical realism and make my book more interesting. But my first agent, who is an amazing person, it was just... I wasn't doing it right. Um, she couldn't package it in such a way, or it, I don't know what it was, but it just like no one was biting. Like sent it off to all these publishers, and they were like, "No." And so I was like, "Okay, well, th- I always promised that this might happen, like that I might not be cut out for this." But I did like have a Kickstarter. Like I, I have people who are expecting a book, so I'll just self-publish. So I'm telling Cheryl this story. And she goes, she's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, listening. And she said, do you, do you want me to encourage you in what you're already doing? Or do you want my honest advice? Which is like such a great thing to say, to say to somebody. And I was like, um, uh, I want your honest advice. So she says, if a publisher is not accepting your book proposal, it's not good enough yet do not self-publish. She was like, that, that avenue works for some, but if you really feel like you are a writer and you don't want to be a marketer and a copy editor and an editor, and there are publishing houses divide up the work into specialization. So all you have to do is write. All the other things from cover design they have professionals do that so that you can write. You want that. And they're, they're, they have access to bookstores. They have access to organic traffic. They have access to media that you can't have on your own. She was like, yes, I could be proved wrong. Yes, you could be the biggest self-publishing person in the world. I don't know that. But what I do know is that chances are you would rather just write and it's probably not good enough yet. And she was totally, I mean, totally right. Oftentimes when someone tells you their educated opinion about something, it stings most when you already feared that was the truth, but Mm. you were like with momentum moving in the other direction. And so I was like, damn, you're right. And so I said, okay, I'm just going to keep working at it. And Cut to, I, re, I reframed it. I went with another agent and he saw... So my first agent was, was more cutting edge, chic, cool, progressive New York. Mm-hmm. And I'm like those things a little bit, but I'm not <laughs> that. You know, I'm like yeah. still kind of old school. Like I'm a little bit like... She called me a secular youth pastor, which is like true. And I was like, okay, am I self-help? 
I hope not. Am I just inspiring like gobbledygook? Maybe a little bit. <laughs> and so she was like super nuanced New Yorker writer essays, right? And I'm over here trying to write this like inspiring whatever it is. And so she's like, honestly, I asked her, I go, I have this other agent who is chomping at the bit. He's like emailing me every day. And he does like progressive Christian inspiring books. And I'm like, he promises me he can sell my book. And she was like, Jed, my job is to sell your book. If I can't do that, I want your success. I adore you. Go forth. Like go forth. It was like this beautiful exchange. Mm -hmm. And so I did. And he is this amazing man. And he worked with Donald Miller and Bob Goff and that kind of world from which I come. I'm like more deconstructed in my religion than they are, Mm -hmm. I think. Uh, But I still come from that world. And my agent had all the contacts in the publishing industry of that type of book publisher. And so we put a proposal together and sent it off. And within two weeks, I had a huge book deal, sold it to Penguin Random House. And it was so amazing. So then to go full circle, I've written this book and it's at this imprint called Convergent, which is fantastic at Penguin Random House. And they focus on progressive spiritual ideas. Mm. Just like when you're really, when you're a seeker, but you're like not trying to shove it into a box. You're actually opening the box and like dumping out the contents and smearing them around on the ground. (laughs) That's their mission statement. (laughs) Um, You're welcome. (laughs) But after I'd written the book, they're like, okay, now you need to go get a blurb. And they're like, we know that you know Cheryl Strayed. And I was like, I I don't know her. (laughs) Like I've thanked her for like changing my life, but I don't know, know her. And they're like, well, do you think like send her a copy of your book and ask her for a blurb? And I was like, this is social suicide. I cannot do that. I cannot. She gets asked this all the time. And newsflash, I listened to her podcast and I've heard her say, I don't do blurbs anymore because every single person in the history of the writing world has reached out to her asking her that. And it got to a point where she having the, the, the mental energy and labor of having to decide who to say yes and no to and how to politely say no was so much. She just has a blanket. No, you said, Hey, will you write a book? <laughs> so I was asking a friend of mine, the actress, Connie Britton with the great hair and the great talent and the mediocre personality, I go, <laughs> Connie, because she knows Cheryl as well in this like z- circle. And I was like, oh my God, my publisher wants me to ask her and I can't. And Connie goes, Jed, I get asked to do things all the time. And guess what? If I can't do it, I say no. Ask her. It's not, th- it's not that hard. She'll say no. And I was like, oh, okay. I was just a little, it was a nudge. So I wrote this like, oh my God, I crafted this email. I Because I had sent her, I had actually hand given her my book at this film festival we were at in Telluride. And I was like, you don't have to read it. Like, oh my God, you can use it for toilet paper. Just like, here you go. like whatever you need, like a kindling for your fire. Um, and so I email her like three weeks later. I, I, I actually said, I'm looking... Now, what did I say? Oh, no, the title of the email was a blanket no. And I was like, I know that you don't do blurbs. 
I actually hate blurbs. I don't want you to do a blurb. I don't even know what I said, but I was made, I made it funny. <laughs> yeah. Reverse and, psychology. Yeah. And I was just like, <laughs> if you've read my book at all, if you liked it and you, you could even just give me a quote that said, I read this book, period. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like that's non-judgmental. It could, it could be true. You could even write, I read some of this book, you know, yeah. that would be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you can just do whatever. Just like, just so you know, I just, I have to ask you and I'm, I know that you've have a blanket. No. So I, I endorse the blanket. No three weeks pass. And so I'm like, Oh my God, mm-hmm. I've taken a hot fat shit <laughs> on my own. <laughs> like, and I see this woman at this film festival every year. Like, Oh, I've, this is it. I've ruined. Like, why do I do this? (laughs) My publisher is like, we're about to go to print, you know? And I'm like, well, she didn't write back. So thanks for ruining my chance at a friendship with my idol. (laughs) And she writes back. The subject line is a blanket. Yes. (gasps) And she, she writes me this like love poem about how much she loved the book and just how proud she is of me and how, perfect the book is and how brave oh like all the i mean it was the most amazing and i can't i don't even know what the message is there like do things that scare you ask your your heroes for favors that they don't want to do what other canvases does bed bath and beyond have yeah i (laughs) i don't know but but it worked out great wow and she's become very dear to me and it's just so, I, I do know this, that she has the deep conviction that once you, when you have worked really hard and reached the place that you dreamed of being, you have somewhat of a moral duty to look behind you and help those yeah. that were you 10 years ago. Yes. You know, it's your opportunity to be like, let me, let me put you under my wing as much as I can or give you some advice. It does, doesn't take that much from me and it gives a lot to you. She really does that profoundly. And it's very much inspired me to, as I'm just beginning my journey as a writer, like I'm very impacted by that. I want to do the same depending on how this evolves. When someone like Cheryl, like sees you like that, Mm -hmm. like what does that do for your evolution of confidence? Cause I, I, I'm just thinking of moments in my life where someone who I've admired is like, how says something about talent or what I'm doing, or even just me as a person. And it does something there's, it's like, I've always been this way, but for some reason, because they see me like that, all of a sudden I'm like, Ooh, standing a little taller. Like, what did it feel like? And what did it do? It was, it's an incredible salve for imposter syndrome. Yeah. Because it's so interesting there's at least with creative work and we see this a lot in, in this city Los Angeles with creative work the goal of your art is for it to translate to a stranger because your friends love you and so if you sing a song or you write a poem your best friends will probably be like babe yes <laughs> get it you know <laughs> And sometimes in the creative pursuit, the love and, and encouragement from your immediate community is complicated or contaminated by their love of you. Mm-hmm. 
and they want to root you on and they want to support you. The mark of like actually doing something as a career is when people that do not know you want the thing you make. And that's maybe the same in probably every profession. If I build houses, I don't want you to like the house I built because I'm your cousin and you love me, but it actually sucks. You actually want a good house, whether whoever made it. And so I think for someone like Cheryl, who has no nothing to gain from encouraging me, maybe it makes her feel good, but it actually, it, if she over delivers compliments to people that she doesn't agree, that attacks her sense of integrity and dilutes her brand as someone who actually knows good writing. That's actually her job is to like teach writing and write well. Mm -hmm. So for her to say that to anybody is, is risky, you know? So that was one of the most validating moments, maybe the most of the experience just, and, and then continuing like now, having so many, the vast majority of people that read my book, I don't know them. And they don't, they don't gain anything from me liking them because I don't know them. And so that's really cool. That's like, oh, I am a writer. Like my words go out into the world away from me. So it, it's not about how funny I am or charming or the fact that I can get you a plus one on this list or something. It's like, no, 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 no. You, the words have their own life. Yeah. And Cheryl really drove that home for me. It was really life-changing. Mm. Can't wait to meet the person that you do that to. <sighs> me too. I may have already done it. Like I, people, it's so funny. People write to me all the time. Because it's so easy. You can DM me on Instagram or email me. And I I read everything. Sometimes I don't respond because sometimes I get the feeling that someone just needs a void to vent to. Yeah. They don't it won't bring them something for me to actually and also I don't have the bandwidth to like have a soul connection with too many people. Like humans don't have that kind of bandwidth. I will say there, when like a 19 year old little gay boy from Birmingham, Alabama or something writes me, I write back because that is just me. That is me. Just, I feel that so deeply, but I've, it is really profound to see how people respond to writing that impacts them. And then just depending on the cir circumstance or what it is, sometimes I'll write back and encourage them or, and they're always like shocked that I noticed. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I actually think that there's like a good chance that like Beyonce scrolls through the comments on her Instagram. Oh. <laughs> Completely. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a very good chance. Well, like you probably get a lot of DMs. I'm like, not that many. No, like we <laughs> read them all. Literally. Honestly, I'm like, not that many, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, we're not Beyonce, but it's like, they probably have a good scroll, you know, like who's tagging, like what's going mm -hmm. on? 100%. And if, if you're scrolling down through, and I, I do this, like if there's some drama going down on like somebody's Instagram and there's 16,000 comments, 
I can scan through a lot quickly for the juice because a lot of them are like tagging a friend being like, OMG, like and you can, you're past that so fast. And then you your eyes will lock on to what you want. And you're the like, paragraph. Yeah. Like, oh shit, people are getting called red for filth. And it's just, so you can get a lot done. Red I'm just like, filth. like Michelle Obama is like this scrolling through. I know it. I know totally. she Totally. strong ass arms. Yeah. Um, you know, in talking about that boy in Alabama. I want to talk about, you know, how you grew up in your childhood because that is weaved into the book in such a beautiful way. So I'd love to to share your story. Mm. Yeah, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, which is a great place if you've never been. I grew up Southern Baptist and then like evangelical Christian. Mm. And I had a fantastic childhood. My parents divorced when I was five. And... I don't remember it. I have a vague, vague memory of my parents being married, but it was, it's very limited. Was that okay in the church or how was that? How did it they... was not okay. Yeah. It was dramatique. Yeah. And they were kind of famous because they were travel writers and they were a big deal in the eighties. Wow. Wow. And like, it was the cover of the Nashville newspaper and like their dirty divorce. I didn't know this. Okay. Um, obviously I'm like playing in the dirt. <laughs> but I'm sure, honestly, I'm sure I absorbed energetically in my body all the tension going on around that. It's, it was like brutal. And that, that may have been influential in me dissociating. You know, I really, I mean, who knows? I really think it might be. But I was always, always loved by both my parents and always encouraged. Mm-hmm. And even as I probably at an early age began like being more feminine than a Tennessee boy might be, you know, in their mind or whatever it is, having a high voice, they, I only ever experienced love and encouragement. And when I was bad at sports and all these, you know, whatever it was, but I think maybe with the divorce and my single mom being very overburdened. And then I had a younger brother with medical problems, which took a lot of her time. And then I had an older sister who was like the most iconic rebellious daughter, drugs, dating drug dealers, storming out, slapping, like, where is my daughter waiting up till 3am? That kind of thing. Yeah. That I kind of came into this world being like, okay, so my mom is hanging on by a thread. I need to not add to her stress. If I have a problem, I need to figure it out because I can't blow up this family. So then, you know, as I'm, I remember in third grade, that would have made me eight. I remember finding out that I'm, that I was attracted to boys and that that was weird. I like said something on the bus and all the boys laughed at me and they were like, that's weird. And I didn't know it was called something. I just knew, uh Oh, yeah, this is bad. Be quiet. Mm-hmm. And you know, as maybe some other kid would ask their parents questions about what does this mean? Whatever. I was just silent and I internalized it. And then in seventh grade, I figured out what it was called. And, you know, the whole time I'm like, well, this is my first time on earth. I think I don't know what's happening. So maybe this goes away, you know? Yeah. And 
You know, it's interesting, like the power of media, like in my Christian community in Tennessee, there were no gay people. It was bad. But on TV, watching primetime NBC, there's Will and Grace. There's the movie, The Birdcage. And I'm like, hmm, oh, that's interesting. Like these people are living this way. So you can live that way, but it might make God angry, but you can, and they seem to be having a good time. So that's interesting. You know, just these little like inputs you're receiving as a child. And that's, it kind of makes sense how really traditional, intense societies limit the books you read and what you watch. Like they try to cut that out because if you let the mind see what's possible, it makes it up. It makes its own choice. Um, I forget how incredibly profound Will and Grace is. Oh my God. It you know, changed like my life. For it someone is. to see both a Jack and a Will. Yeah. And relate to one or both and say, wow, that is <laughs> possible. Yeah. You know, time. oh my God. You know? Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. And the reboot is so good. I, so it's good. So good. It's like perfect. Um, <laughs> But I don't know. I And, you know, there's all these multifactored things happening in life. I, I actually, one of the most helpful metaphors for being a human that I've ever thought about is a mixing board. So you picture like a mixing board in a recording studio, all those knobs. So your life isn't just one knob, which, you know humans are very reductionist. So we think, oh, because you're black, you have the black knob turned all the way up. That's your experience, like your black experience. And they're like, actually, my life is really complex. There's like a thousand knobs. And that's like the whole, for me, okay, my like sexuality is gay. So that knob is turned up. But then I'm also like in maybe perhaps because you're trying to, in the mixing board, you're trying to equalize the sound. So I turned up my humor and I turned up charm and I turned up nice and I turned up achieving in school and I turned up being nice to adults and making the adults like me because the kids would make fun of me. And then, Oh, actually if I'm really funny and I can beat the mean jock to a joke, then all the girls like me more than the jock. Uh Oh power. And I was doing this all the time. So even though my sexuality was confusing, I was like nailing all these other things. I loved school. And without being conscious of it, I like learned how to fit in in such a way where I could succeed. And some people can't, you know, some people based on where their knobs are turned up, like if you have gay or if you have, if you're a guy and you have feminine turned all the way up, your feminine energy is high and you're in a rural traditional town, that's going to be a hard road for you because you're not fitting into these norms. And so you might turn up humor over here or you might hang out with only the theater girls because they make you feel safe or, you know, all these different things. Like people are just trying to make it and they're like fudging with their knobs. And so I, you know, found my mix by getting super involved in school, by making friends, by being the most fun. And so that's, I mean, that really carried me into college. And then I, because I became a student of my own life, I'm like, hmm, this is so strange. Like I have a different sexual attraction than everyone I know. 
Mm-hmm. And that is so weird. And I think I'm supposed to feel bad about it, but I don't. I rem- I never did because uh-huh. I knew I didn't choose it. It's not like when you, when you're, when you bully someone and then you feel bad about it. Cause you're like, why did I do that? I see that I hurt somebody. It never made sense to me that I couldn't just fall in love with someone who loved me back. It like, but the Bible said it, my pastor said it, my mom said it, the church said it. So I'm like, I don't think I'm smarter than all these people. Like, I don't think I'm my one little life. I'm 16 years old. I'm, I know something that a 3000 year old biblical scripture doesn't like that seems strange. And so, you know, I, I took my sweet time figuring all that out and I became a student of my own experience, which is part of the disassociation. So it didn't feel so urgent, but I mean, that ultimately led me to be romantically delayed in a major way. So, you know, through my twenties, I, you know, I went to undergrad at USC, came out here for college, then didn't know what I was going to do. I thought I wanted to be a movie director, but then I realized that being a movie director is like being the boss of like 250 people. And you have to just like be scary. And I was like, no, 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 no. I can't do that. I can't like think of all these factors at once. But what I realized is, oh, that was just, I mislabeled what I wanted, what my spirit wanted, which was to tell stories, to like tell, to articulate ideas because my fa- yeah, my favorite thing was movies growing up. So I was like, oh, I guess I want to make movies. So I moved out here and had a blast again, got super involved in the church because my like desire to mess with my knobs and to be, and to belong was keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Well, if the church is, if the Christian community is challenging me and I don't know what I think about that, I'm going to become the best Christian. I'm going to know the Bible more than everybody (laughs) because I'm going to, the thing that frightens me, I'm going to dominate it so that I can figure out what the heck my life is. So I became the most and just led Bible studies and read every book about everything and read the Bible back to front all these times. You know, in that community, like there are no openly gay people. Or if they, I I was open, I came out when I was 21, but I was like, I'm not acting on it because I don't know what it means. Because I have like, sexuality is a spectrum, but I am like all the way on the gay spectrum. I've like, I can't, people are like, oh, have you ever like made out with a girl or had sex with a girl? I'm like, no. Have you ever kissed a girl? No. <laughs> I did. Blanket, my, no. My yeah. friend, yeah. My friend Natalie did, when she found out when I was like 23 that I'd never kissed anyone, she was like, uh-uh, I'm going to teach you how to kiss. But it felt very much like when you give CPR to that plastic <laughs> robot. I mean, she's a good kisser, but you know what I'm saying? It wasn't like... <laughs> <clears throat> but anyway, so all that to say, my internal spiritual journey, as I actually decided to become the best Christian, I was like really studying how the Bible was written and all these things. And the deeper you go, you start, I it really started to dismantle like the way that the Bible saw homosexuality, the way the idea of this, this rigidity of the God that we worshiped just felt the more I read, the more I was like, this is just, we're doing it wrong. Like we're really doing it wrong. And it just really started to deconstruct my whole situation. And it was around that same time that I 
realized, oh, I have been on the assembly line of life. Like, and now I went from college to law school to work at work at this charity, which I loved, but I didn't choose it. It was just right in front of me. I, I was asked to work there. So I walked through that door and it was life-changing, but it was not my choice. It wasn't for me. And I, I was 26 years old, 27. And I'm like, whoa, I'm like a man. I've never kissed anyone in my life. I've never even so much as held a hand. I am like, this is my one and only life. And it was almost it, this like confluence of moments just like snapped me into, I need to like make some choices. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to walk in faith and I'm going to like date boys. I'm going to kiss a boy. And if God is pissed, then he'll make me know that. Hello, walk in faith. Like he will change, he will show me. And if he's like, Newsflash, I always wanted you to do this. Get busy. I'd be like, dope. And, <laughs> and I was like, oh, and I, I think I want to write books. And that's scary, but I'm not getting younger. I don't have a family. I don't have a mortgage. I'm going to be 30 and that feels like a grown up. And so I'm going to quit my job when I turn 30 and I'm going to go on this big adventure and write a book about it. And so I did. And I had my first kiss at 28, the day Osama bin Laden was killed. Jesus Christ. Not like, I wasn't like turned on by that. I just, it was like, I remember. I am <laughs> like, like, yes. Like, yes, I need someone to kiss. Like dark. Yeah, you're like, I need to kiss someone. <laughs> no, Gotta I just, celebrate with kisses. It's just, I mean, most people probably don't know the date of their first kiss. Yeah. They can yeah. remember it, but they don't know what totally. day it was. Yeah, totally. I think it was May 11th. No, May 10th. I just wrote about this. My next book, which I'm, finishing right now, yeah. finishing the first draft. One of the chapters is on love and the opening essay is about my first kiss at that advanced age of 28. And I write all about that day, which is really fun. The guy who I kiss doesn't know he's my first kiss. He's going to find out when he I reads love, his book. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, he might've known when he kissed me, he was like, uh-oh. <laughs> he's like, is this CPR dummy? <laughs> <laughs> is this guy playing a harmonica with that? <laughs> <laughs> what the the repression of sexuality sexuality can i speak um is really interesting mm. just in your case just not allowing yourself to explore that until a later age and then also thinking about you know people and groups of people who you know whether it's in the church or not who are unable to do that uh, because of, you know, certain rules and things like that. But I'm just wondering, like, how did that affect other areas of your life? So when when you had that first kiss or when you were able to freely express yourself in that way, like what what other freedoms did that give you just as a human being? Because I, it's such a huge part of who we are. You know, it's so interesting. I would say... Sort of what we were saying earlier about how we've inherited this worldview that the mind is higher than the body in our society to some degree and rejecting the carnal as base and simple and animalistic. And I think that I know a lot of, of gay men who grow up in the church mm-hmm. do what I did and they, be, they repress it and they want to double down And they're like, I'm going to marry God. Like I'm going to be the most. So I'm going to become a priest or I'm going to become a youth pastor. I'm going to become worship leader. I'm going to sing the songs. I'm going to do it all to prove that I'm a good boy. 
And when you push down part of the balanced truth of an identity, it it becomes like pressured gas. You know, it, it air is meant to be air is meant to fill the room evenly. And when you compress it, it becomes explosive and it becomes volatile. It can actually one nick, one little bump, it can blow up. Mm-hmm. And I think you see that with child molestation in the church, with all these things like it it doesn't go away. And it it God doesn't heal it because God never wanted to heal it. He wanted us to evolve and understand that that is part of healthy identity. And I mean, I was so, I don't even know if I call myself Christian anymore. To some degree I do, but there's a, Jesus says like, you will know good teaching by the fruit it bears. If it bears bad fruit, it is not of me. And the idea being like, you look at the, what is it called? The gay healing ministries where you just Mm -hmm. pray the gay away and whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it doesn't work. It does not work. Over and over again, you see these examples and you see the founders of Exodus International and these organizations recant, like repenting of their ministry. They're like, I caused a lot of damage. I am a gay man and this is like evil. And I'm sorry I did this to so many men. Mm. So I really think the church's rejection of the body is deeply damaging and problematic and sad and and we see it, it pays it pays dividends uh, that problem pays dividends over and over and over in so many of our lives the flip side of that being because i was so afraid of my body i developed an identity that was purely cerebral and purely affectionately relational. So I was just a friend. I was just Mm. fun. I was just in my head. I was just a philosopher. So I actually didn't have body image problems. Mm. I didn't think about my body. It was just like a meat bag that got my mouth (laughs) into another room. Okay. So what was really interesting was every beautiful thing has light and a shadow, a yin and a yang. I finally got to experience the fullness of like my body and being attractive to somebody and being attracted to someone and having it reciprocated and having someone want to hold your hand, which is the most amazing feeling. But every, the universe demands balance. When I finally received that, I also saw myself in the mirror and I was mm-hmm. like, you fugly bitch, mm-hmm. you know, for the first time ever. And I'm, I love myself. Like I accept the good with the bad. I accept the yin and the yang. But I was like, damn, like all of a sudden I used to tell all my friends who would beat up on themselves for the way they look like all through my twenties. I'm like, you are beautiful. Like you are perfect. Cause I really, because I wasn't in the romance game, I didn't see anything but someone's spirit. I really did. I was like an angel. (laughs) Yeah, and (laughs) That's true. (laughs) And so it was an interesting exchange. Like once you're in the game, you're in the game and you can lose. Mm -hmm. Because that vulnerability. Yeah, it's vulnerable. You know, it's like oh. true when it's like mind, body, and like mind, spirit, and body vulnerability. Yeah. You're like, whoa. I, yeah, I know. But like all, all truth, all wisdom comes with the light and the shadow. It has to. And if you only see light, then you're ignoring the shadow. That's just mm-hmm. the truth. And so I accept that, you know? And I, and I also have to work through it because like, like all humans, 
when that day comes where I find a husband and he just loves me for me, I have to overcome the fear that he's going to find out that I am not what he thinks I am. Uh, He's going to realize I'm disgusting. You know, isn't it so funny? Cause I've been so deeply in love before and, and seen someone with their flaws. And I'm like, dude, your flaws are what make you perfect. Like I am so into it. Yes. But yeah, it's just the fucking human condition, which is like, thank God we're in this together. I I was just thinking about that. Like in my relationship, it has been nice that when I show my flaws or with Justin, it's like, he feels like he can share his. And I Mm. do feel like I'm loved more because of it. Mm. It's getting a little out of hand now, but (laughs) kind of going off the deep end with it. But (laughs) I got got one little bit of permission and I'm like, oh shit, we're going (laughs) to let's roll. Literally. Let's fucking You like my farts? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Cause I was thinking about in your question a little bit, I was thinking about sexuality as it relates to creativity, you know, Mm. that center where sexuality lies and, is a lot related to our ability to be creative. But when you were also t- but when you're also talking about, you know, getting your first kiss at 28, do you feel like you missed out or are you looking forward to the future? Like do you feel like there's a part of you that's like, "Oh, I kind of wish I experienced it more" or are you thankful for the journey as it is now? I love that question because I was just my friend John texted me a photo this morning of me when I was 20 eight years away from my first kiss. And I was like, I was like, he is cute. Like he is cute. You know, like back then I wouldn't have thought that I would have been like, ew, or I don't even, I didn't even think about myself, but I was like, dang, like he should have been getting smooched, you know? But at the same time, the balance to that is most people have their first kiss in a hormone anxiety ridden 14 year old body. Yes. And you're just like, what the fuck is happening? (laughs) I experienced it with the lucidity Uh, of a law degree uh, and an adult. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? Like I was fully me. And like, there's that, (laughs) there's another Josh Turner song, which is called the longer the waiting, the sweeter the kiss. It's actually called that. (laughs) And it's true. It's the outro to this episode. Wow. That's insane. It's such a good song, by the way. But it's true. It was so special. Mm. And I was like, I was there and I was me and I loved who I was and I had a career and I was like killing it and I had a great life. And I'm like, and I'm getting kissed by this cute boy on a beach. It's kind of like a kiss on a beach. It's kind of like if you go to Disney World when you don't, when you're like, like four. Yeah. I love it. And you I will probably, you probably won't remember all of it and all the good mm-hmm. stuff. And it, it's just like, you're like, you're just kind of flailing around like, okay, I'll go here. And, but I, I, I'm thinking about that too. And like, first time I, I, I think about the first time you're nodding, like I'm going <laughs> to say goodness. something real dumb. <laughs> it's like when you have sex for the first time, if I'm thinking about myself at, I, I was 18. I mean, if I could go back, no regrets, Yeah, but also, Never I mean, it would have been nice to be, I don't know, like 24, 25, just thinking about myself at that age, the awareness, uh, body awareness, maybe, maybe just like having the situation not be on like a washer dryer and having like the foresight to be of like, course. Hey, this is what I want. And maybe we should <laughs> plan it this way, this whatever it is. Butt. But I just, I see the value. <laughs> How painful. You're like, 
<laughs> I, I love that reflection of, of just feeling like really great about it and just yeah. loving that that was the moment that it happened in your life. I, I consume podcasts like, because I actually learn best yeah. hearing it. Same. I've actually really dove, dove into books on tape because mm-hmm. isn't it funny? We still call it tape. Maybe we don't audiobooks, yeah. And I just learn so well that way when I'm driving around mm-hmm. Los Angeles or wherever I am. Oh, this is what it was. It was about, it was this great episode of a podcast called hidden brain about what you put on the internet is there forever. And this kid got his application rescinded from Harvard Mm. because he posted a inappropriate meme on Facebook. Wow. It was a bad meme. Let me be very clear. Okay. But it was like, but it was 18 year old boy humor, which I was an 18 year old boy and nothing was off limits because all you're trying to do is make your friends laugh. And the more shocking it is, the funnier. Mm -hmm. So it was very shocking, but it's all about that. And he, this, this kid is also a golfer. And he said, he said, I have to take ownership of my choices. And he goes, it's like golf. If I swing and I end up in the forest, I can't be pissed and wish I hadn't done that. I have to now go in the forest and swing like I chose to be in the forest. Like I have to swing like that's where I started in the forest. That's my life now. Wow. And I got to get to the hole. And I thought that was so profound. I was mm. like, if your ball is in the sand, that's where it is, yo. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it doesn't matter about, uh, I wish it wasn't in the sand. It's in the sand. So let's get it out of the sand and then let's move on. And it's like, could I go back and be 20 and kiss? And uh, I don't know. Like all of those factors led me to like the writer and thinker and yeah. person that I am. And, and the like, now, like when I have intimacy in any form, I cherish it because I know what it's like to not have it. Yes. And so I don't know. I'm grateful for the way it turned out. And like my first time having sex was fantastic. Oh, I was just thinking that I was like, it's probably bomb. It was. And it was so, it it was so fun because it was an example of the exchange. The person that I was my first boyfriend And he was younger than me, but he had had plenty of sex. He was like free, Mm. but he, I was older than him. So I had all this like life to give him all this like social community and like friendships and like whatever. And then he was able to like teach me about my body. Like he felt like I have something to give you that's very special. And he made me feel like a zillion dollars. And it was like a really amazing exchange. That's so beautiful. Yeah. It was very cool. Beautiful. Wow. I'd love to know what your relationship with your parents has been like since coming out and how you've navigated that. Mm. You know, I know your parents love and support you, but I'm sure there was some um, internal reconciling just within the life in the church and, and kind of loving you and also you know, believing X, Y, Z from, um, the Bible. So what has that been like? And is it continuously evolving? It is continuously evolving. I think my, my parents have been divorced as long as I can remember. So it was always like, it wasn't a unified front. It was like Mm. my dad over Mm -hmm. here and my mom over here. Yeah. And they're different people. 
my dad is Christian, but he's always been more like laissez-faire, you do you. You know, he'd been married before my mom. He divorced my mom, married my stepmom, divorced my stepmom. Like, mm-hmm. And he had gotten a lot of flack for like being not a perfect Christian. So that had kind of fried his circuits to being righteous. He's like, I'm not here to tell anybody how to live because people have been trying to tell me how to live my whole uh, life. Yeah. I, I'm not here to like harsh anyone's mellow. You do you. I love you. Is, And so I always felt safe with my dad. I, I, I felt... He didn't quite understand what it was. He's like that gay thing. Like, okay, you, you have fun, you know, <laughs> like it was very clear. Like he didn't really get it, but he wasn't going to tell me how to live. Mm. Whereas my mom was a different situation. Cause she was like more involved in raising me. And just like, I think who knows? She, she just felt like things didn't go according to plan. You know, like she was supposed to be married to the man of her dreams, three kids. Her daughter wasn't supposed to fall into drugs. Her youngest son wasn't supposed to have medical problems. And certainly her middle son wasn't supposed to be gay. Like what happened? Maybe if my husband hadn't left me, maybe like all these things. Cut to it's the 80s. So right as I'm turning four five, the cover of the New York Times is all gay men are dying of AIDS. Mystery gay cancer wiping out gay people. Cut to her in church. See that the wages of sin is death. If you man lies with another man, he will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. I mean, hello, that's a one plus one equals two. That's obvious, you know? So it's like, oh, well, if my son is gay, which he's maybe playing with a My Little Pony, uh uh-oh, like this spirit is upon him. I need to pray against it because if he falls into that lifestyle, it could kill him. That would scare the hell out of me if I was a mom in the South. So as I kind of, you know, grow up watching Will and Grace and think it might be okay. And then I moved to California and it certainly is like, even though that was a journey for me, I was very involved in the church for most of my time here. The non-affirming church. It's just been really hard for her. Mm -hmm. She believes the Bible as it is written. She does not think that those verses are up for debate. They're very clear. When her life was falling apart, the church and Jesus was there for her, kept her alive, kept our family alive. She owes it everything. So for me to challenge things and question all that is got to be hard. You know, I fully, fully see her perspective. And it all stems from her wanting the best for me. And I think that is, and so I, the thing is, I don't need her to agree with that side of me to love her. As long as she respects me and respects the dignity of my own choices, which she does. She really does. And so I don't know. I see in my relationship with my mom, something that I think our country has lost, which is the ability to respectfully disagree. Mm. And the thing, the reason why we've lost that is because of a thing Jonathan Haidt talks about, which is catastrophization. I think I say that right, that word, right. Which is you take something and, and put it on the slippery slope towards its most extreme. So if you say, I don't think, that 
we should have trans bathrooms. Okay. You let's say you're in North Carolina or whatever, and you think, no, the catastrophization of that is this is trans lives. These, you are killing these people. They're committing suicide because of you. No, they're not. I mean, that's, that is taking it to the extreme. This person Mm -hmm. just believes Mm -hmm. that you are born with a vagina or a penis. The end. Okay. They might be wrong. They might be deep learning, but that's what they believe. And they don't want to murder trans people. But the implication is that they do because that dangerous is, I mean, that belief is quote dangerous, which it is, you know, like the amalgamation and amassing of a million beliefs and a death by a thousand cuts does lead people to this or that result, Mm -hmm. really negative results. So it is such a complex thing, but I think what I'm curious if we are, we have lost the ability to tolerate beliefs on the other side because we assume that anything that hints with the other direction of thought leads to death and destruction, you know? And I mean, that's what both sides have always done. It's like, conservatives assume we want the death of the family. You know, they're like, oh, if gays start getting married, marriage is, what are they going to do? Have sex with dogs now? Like they just exaggerate it all the way, you know? Mm-hmm. Or it's like, if you're, if you're like, oh, I actually read Jordan Peterson's books and they're like, oh my God, you're a Nazi. You are a full on white supremacist. And you look around and you're like, hello, what? No, yeah. I'm not. It's just catastrophization. And like yeah. the, the, magnetic pull of hyperbole of belief. And I just, the thing that my mom and I have is just love and laughter. We love each other. She raised me and we, on the foundations of the, of the earth, what it means to be human, we have different, we stand on different rocks and that has trickle up. Like there's a cascade of different, different ways in which we see the world that affects a lot. Our politics, the places we eat, the food, all of it, the type of people we surround ourselves with. But at the, at our core, we are human and we love each other and she loves me and I love her. And I think we're very lucky that in our DNA is a lot of laughter because mm. some people are just very serious and that's hard and we aren't. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, I'd rather have a messy, complicated loving mom than stand on my righteous throne and cast her to the dogs. You know? Because that's not the real world either. Like it's kind of a micro of the macro. Everyone is different. Everyone has different beliefs and the ways they were brought up. So to be able to find the love and the laughter, you know, at that, at the center is kind of like hopefully where the world will go eventually, you know? So to cultivate these little micro um, versions of that will maybe create a world around you too that that reflects that. Yeah, I all I know is that's how it feels in my life with that specific relationship. Yeah. I do believe in flipping your shit and getting angry at things mm-hmm. and and getting furious at worldviews that are dangerous. If you th- you know like that is a real response, and I think that has a role in society in the mm-hmm. same way that if the body is wounded, pain warns you to stop doing it. Then once you stop doing it, then the white blood cells come in and fix it. So 
And sometimes pain, if it's too much, you experience chronic pain. And that way, that is what happens when your body is sending the, a false signal. Your body's actually okay, but it thinks it's not. And so you live miserably. Mm. And I think sometimes we can get in the posture of chronic pain and we miss where the real pain is. Mm. And that's something, society is a giant body, just as our bodies are an organism of billions of cells working together. Yeah, so I don't, I don't mean to like have a prescription for people to how to live, but I just know that I'm glad I have a relationship with my mom. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's another, in watching you too, that's another really beautiful thing you do is you always make it about you. Like you, you make it about your learnings and your experiences, but in a beautiful way, it's non-judgmental because you bring it back to you. Mm. You know, you experiencing this, you learning this, you viewing this, your like idea of this. And I was kind of thinking, and that's such a beautiful way to make things not divisive and make things digestible for everyone because they're seeing it through your lens, mm. um, which is really nice. Last question from me. I want to talk about how you've cultivated your community, like your friends and your relationships, you know, are so meaningful to you and so powerful. What is it that you do? Do you like, how do you foster those relationships? Because I think a lot of the people in our community are finding this experience where they're transitioning to their through their 20s and they're feeling a little lost with relationships. Like they're evolving out of them, they're evolving into them and they're not really able to foster these deep, meaningful friendships. So for, I have seen that a lot of people are friends with just whoever is around them. And so it's, it, they often don't respect the people they're around. They're just who was next to you, who was in close. So you might actually hate your friends. <laughs> and that happens a lot. In actually. college, that was yeah. the yeah. case. Proximity. I think I benefited from certain circumstantial privileges that really shaped my communities. My first job out of law school was at a charity called Invisible Children, which was people 19 to 35 years old who dedicated their life, most of them volunteering to try to save the lives of child soldiers in Central East Africa mm. through art and documentary filmmaking and, and like waking up high schoolers and college kids to their global voice. So like, it's a thing I call gravity points. It's like the gravity point of wanting to change people's lives, like change the world, drew a certain type of people in. And so I inherited or I was part of this pulsing organism of people whose gravity point was changing the world for the better. It wasn't people trying to get their rocks off or trying to get fucked up at the club or trying to, mm. or just trying to make money and then trying to get fucked up after work because they hated making money all day at this shitty job. That's like, of course you're not going to find soulmates at places like that because the soul isn't even involved. Yeah. And this was very deeply rooted in soul. And so I walked away with like a hundred incredible friends. Mm. And then when that becomes the foundation of your social network, that gravity point radiates out. And then the type of person that is that type of person has found those type of people in their hometown and has found those type of people 
in New York and London and Portland and wherever, St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden this network is just gigantic. And then the type of people, it, it just kind of like set the algorithm of my mind on how to find people that I respect that want to make the mm-hmm. world a better place, that are kind, that are loving, that are fun, that are creative. Yeah. It just kind of trained my algorithm. And I think for people moving to a new city, starting a new job, like your job might not be the gravity point. I hope it is because that makes it easy, but it might not be. It might be that you want to be a good citizen. And so you go to the LA river cleanup when they do like huge cleanups and you go pick up trash and all anyone that's there spending their Saturday morning doing that is probably dope, you know? And then you can use all your other algorithms to be like, "Mm, her pants are weird, but I love his shoes. I bet we would get along. (laughs) You know, I'm going to, I'm going to be like, where do you live? Like, uh, you know, and then all of a sudden you have a friend. I like, I've made this amazing group of friends recently called the wander boys, which is one of my gay friends was like, you know what? We don't have enough of sisterhood. Like in the gay like world, it's like either hooking up or partying or like you're alone, Mm -hmm. lonely. And it's like, we should like go camping and have a rule. Like we can't be no hooking up. You're just here to like be sisters. And we wear wigs and heels like in the forest. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like no hooking, just fun. And we started going on these trips and we just had a summer camp of like 35 guys in uh, Wisconsin this past summer. And it was so fun and so pure. Mm. And like, it was just like, you know, there's, there's internalized homophobia and shame growing up in America where it's like, if you wear a wig and heels, you're like, it's too much. You know, like there are going to be people from home that are going to roll their eyes. And that like is internalized your whole Mm -hmm. childhood. And to be there with all these guys, I've never worn a wig in my life or heels. And it's just, it's not about like, I wish I was a woman. It's about celebrating my feminine side and about being silly, like just being silly. Like, and when you put on that outfit, you are, you change. Like my name was Rachel and I was like a D-list celebrity with a team who was trying to get her booked on things and they can't. And it became this whole character that was so fun. And I was just like, wow, this gravity point of gay men who long for friendship that isn't complicated. Wow. Like, mm-hmm. And then they want the out, like the outdoors, yeah. like bring them to do something together outside. And it was this beautiful gravity point. And we're like, and all of a sudden I have a very robust community in Los Angeles already, but a lot of these guys, the, the, the group chat we're on is lit as fook. Okay. Because like they're, they basically have been waiting their whole time living here for this group of friends and they found them and you feel it. It is like on wow. fire, which is so fun. And then like, whenever we have a little reunion, we all get together and it's just like family and it's instant family, you know? Yes. That makes me so happy. Yeah. So there's so much sisterhood as far as female stuff going yeah. on, but like that is powerful. Well, and the gay experience is such a unique, it's such a weird one because when your sexuality is more heteronormative, so you're at one end of the scale and then your Mars and Venus, like the person you're attracted to is different than you. So got straight guys with their straight guy friends, there's no, it is purely platonic and full of joy and affection. I mean, the goal would be that is as men become less toxically masculine, there'll be more affection and more love there, but it's so fun and pure and, 
and women, I, you know, to mm-hmm. the same degree, but gay men, the, you are attracted to also the thing that you are. And so it's actually harder to have sisterhood without attraction falling in there. In the same way that, yes, men and women, straight men and women can be friends, but oftentimes there will be a complexity. One will start to catch for the other at some point in the journey. Mm -hmm. You know, at some point it's going to happen. And so, I don't know, it's just like a remix of the human experience and the gay experience is fun, Mm -hmm. but it's interesting. I love that. I love that. I'm curious, last question for me, just about your relationship with your creativity and your imagination, whether people are creatives as their career or whether they just want to explore more with what's coming through them. Like, how do you, in your own way, channel your creativity? What do you do when you feel like you have to let something go or actually make something happen and put it out into the world. I'm just curious about your process and what's been rewarding and also really challenging about it. I am a classic case of the kid who would rather get a B minus and not try than try for an A and get a B. Like it's embarrassing to try and not get the thing that Mm. you wanted. So it was just like so much easier to jerk off and just like laugh and hang out Mm -hmm. and just skate by. So knowing that about myself and knowing that I do want to create and put beautiful things in this world, I have to put myself in a moving train. I have to put myself in a framework of a deadline and a publicly promised product uh, and a thing so that I I can't do it out of willpower alone. I don't have the power. I don't really have willpower. I am just a robot that just does whatever it wants. And so I have to, (laughs) but I do have social shame. If I said I was going to do something and Uh, I don't, I feel bad. And so I, there's a quote, Oh man, I think maybe it was Elizabeth Gilbert, but it was be kind to future you. And so I'm like, gosh, future me like wants to have like written good books. Future me wants to like make music future me. I want to be able to say I did that. And so how do I be kind to that person now? Okay, well, set yourself in the way of doing it. Like set it up to where you have to do it. Mm-hmm. Because every day is going to come with bullshit and you're going to get lazy and you're going to get tired and you're not going to want to do it. So set deadlines, set expectations. Like for me, I could never just like write a book. I had to have a editor expecting it from me at this date. And they do such a good job of that. Like sometimes authors don't have really hard deadlines. And I asked, I was like, I need a hard deadline. Like I need to be frightened. And so. (laughs) You want to be anxious. Yeah. And so they, they were like, well, when do you want your book to come out? They were, it's, they were, they were like, well, if we want it to come out September of 2020, that means production takes three months copy editing, which is like specific, like down to the letter, making sure nothing is whatever it takes a month and a half. General editing takes four months. Cover design takes three weeks. Uh, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, they're like, bup, 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 bup. your book is due tomorrow. I'm like, <gasps> Oh my God. <laughs> you know, I, think I take that back. It's like, Oh God, there's so much that goes into wow. it. And so that like, they're like, okay, when do you want it to come out? And I'm like, okay, well, I guess <laughs> this time. And so like, okay, well then can you get us a first draft by 
November 1st. And I'm like, oh God. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a good one. That's a good wow. One. You know? Yeah. And so, and now obviously like a book from a publishing house is a complex thing that has a lot of moving parts. If you're doing a, a more immediate creation, you still have to, th- if you're baking a cake, you're like, well, do I want the cake to be done at 4am? No, I want it to be done when my friends are here at 6pm. I better fucking make it. <laughs> like I got to preheat the oven. Like things take time. Yeah. So, and what's nice, like I, whenever our house gets a little dirty, we're like time to throw a party because when we throw a party, we clean the house. <laughs> like I just have to put some, myself in the way of shame <laughs> to yeah. do good work. Yeah. <laughs> or like people totally. being mad at you yeah. like with a date. You're like, they're going to be mad at me if I don't give it by the date or like with, they're like, right. okay, my friends will be embarrassed if my house is dirty. Well, it feels like, it feels like I'm hacking my own brain. Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. I don't, I know that I'll be proud of myself when I produce this thing, but today I just want to have a cocktail. Totally. Yeah. And so, but then if I just today have a cocktail every day, then all of a sudden I never yeah. did it. And so I have to like trick myself, life hack my own mind to be like, okay, well force yourself to do it. And yeah. then yeah. I look back and I'm like, dope, I did that thing. You're like, yeah. It's almost like increasing your threshold too for like things that maybe you don't want to do in the moment or that, maybe one day you just write shit and you're like, this sucks. But like increasing your, I, I'm just saying that cause that's my experience where I'm like, I really have to increase like my ability to be uncomfortable with what I produce on a daily basis because like all it takes is a handful of just more than a handful, but of amazing days that will produce something, you know, like there's going to well, be a lot of shitty ones. If you hold it too precious, yeah. if you hold it too precious, yes. then you just you crack, you crack and don't do it. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, mm, That's I'm my not, life. I'm not right. Yeah. And it's just, you know, Annie, Annie Lamott always talks about shitty first drafts. Like that is the key to writing. Yeah. Shitty first, like you just got to puke yeah. it out. And it's so true. Totally. It's so much easier to mold clay than manifest something out of nothing. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I love yes. I'm so excited for the book. <laughs> I'm having real. I'm having a lot of fun writing this one. Oh so my it's going to be I'm sure 2021 or 2020. September 2020. Great. Okay, baby, we're ready. Wow. Where can our listeners? I'll come back on. You yeah, better done. We'll be like, we're here to promote. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make sure we'll have air conditioning at that point. Pew and pew. We'll do like yeah. the yeah. Where can our listeners connect with you in the meantime? I mean, I guess Instagram. Instagram. I just yeah, that's the best. It's the easiest. It's the best. It's what, what I mean things. is your Instagram is yeah. oh, really oh, beautiful. Oh, thank you. My Instagram is just my name, Jedediah Jenkins. I think what I like about Instagram is the fact that because Instagram is the, of all the social medias that I've engaged with, it is the most like a bookstore. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is you, you can like peruse the bookstore, but you're not forced to read books that you don't want to read. Whereas on Twitter or Facebook, you're seeing like if your crazy uncle comments on his crazy nephew's post, the algorithm shows you that. And you're like, I don't even know this person. Why am I reading this rant about their horrible experience at Taco Bell? (laughs) Like I didn't sign up for this. (laughs) Whereas on Instagram, you only see who you follow. Mm -hmm. And so I think that curation makes people see what they want to see. So the overall experience is more positive. Obviously every yin has a yang. So people are very performative on there, Mm -hmm. but it's a positive experience. And I really enjoy that. It's not as combative. It's not angry like these other things are. And so I enjoy using it. I write on there. I'm, you know, 
silly on my Instagram stories. And I share a lot of what I'm reading, consuming, listening to yeah. on my stories, which is, it's a fun way to like engage with that community because yeah, I like to see what other people are listening to and learn from that. So yeah. Yeah. Whenever I see your posts, I'm like, oh, I have to sit down. <laughs> like a <laughs> lot of them, go. like I got to sit down for this one. Like some are like, oh, cool. You know, whatever. Yeah. Paris. The toilet is the reason that I, percent. you know, you got to need a moment. You yeah. know, it's like, this is going to change my perspective on my mm-hmm. life. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you Thanks so much. Thank you for Just having perfect. me. We loved it. Anytime. All right, guys, we'll see you next time. We love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much, Jedediah, for joining us. And if you'd like to read Jedediah's book, To Shake the Sleeping Self, you can find it anywhere books are sold. More information on jedediahjenkins.com. Follow him at jedediahjenkins. We love you. We love you. So good. Truly. We'd love to share a review of the week. Oh, um, I want you guys is, to get real creative on the reviews. Let's see what kind of creativity we can get. This for is these a creative reviews. name. Huffle Pufflin. Done. <laughs> you win. Huffle Pufflin says five stars. Damn. I love this podcast. The girls cover a wide variety of topics and keep things real. They make you laugh, cry, think, and feel. For a real is this a poem? God. Wow. For real. I always feel like I am in the studio with them and their guests and they always have me considering new ideas while inspiring me to be my best, most authentic self. Thank you, Hufflepuffle. Oh, so sweet. And I said God because it's just sometimes so beautifully written. It takes Truly. my breath away. Thank you so freaking much. I mean, the reviews are just so sweet. And even if you're like, hey, love the cut of her jib, five stars. Well, we love it. I'd love that one. I would love it. I love the cut of their jib. We would appreciate that. So reviews just help us get on amazing guests, keep us going. Um, and we're excited to see you guys on tour. We'll Can see you on the 19th in Malibu for a divine awakening, feminine healing womb circle. Every buzzword. Uh, it's going to be amazing though. It's six yeah. hours. We have amazing food by Live Hungry and it'll be sound bath, cacao ceremony, healings by a healer that I am obsessed with mm-hmm. uh, from London. And then we have November 9th with Jenna Zoe. She's a human design expert, our human design reader. Uh, she's changed my lives and many others. She is the bomb. So we'll be diving into human design, everything that it means for you and and finding your soul's purpose. And then we're going to DC and Philly at the end of October. Yeah, with Heidi Stevens in DC and then with Krista and I in Philly. And then we're headed to Australia, Sydney and Melbourne in November. Can't wait to see you. And if you'd like more information, almost30podcast.com slash tour. Love y'all. Love you. Bye-bye. Bye.